Welcome to Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to serve God and your neighbor. If you want to learn more about our ministry, head over to mapc.com. If you're looking for a community where you can deepen your faith, we invite you to join us every Sunday at 1030 online or in person. It is good to see you this morning, and it's good to welcome you, those of you who are worshiping us online. Our New Testament reading today comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, the 25th chapter, beginning with verse numbered 14. Jesus said, For it is as if a man, going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents, but the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave, You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. I recently received a letter from a friend. He wrote, Money. It can buy you a house, but not a home. It can buy you a bed, but not sleep. 
It can buy you a clock, but not time. It can buy you a book, but not knowledge. It can buy you position, but not respect. It can buy you medicine, but not health. It can buy you blood, but not life. So you see, money isn't everything, and it causes pain and suffering. I tell you all this because I am your friend, and as your friend, I want to take away your pain and suffering. So send me all of your money, and I will suffer for you. Have you ever noticed that money is a touchy subject in our society? When the topic of money comes up in faith communities, for example, we, we, we tend to get uh, rather uncomfortable and get somewhat stiff in our seats and we look around and, mm, mm. Uh, why is that? How much we earn, how we spend what we earn, what wealth means to us, have become taboo in our society. James Hudnut Beamler is a historian of religious history, American religious history, and in his wonderful little book, Generous Saints, Dr. Hudnut Beamler observes, it is culturally more acceptable to confess to a substance abuse problem or sexual difficulties than to own up to having overspent one's resources, encountered credit difficulty, or lost employment. The taboo stems from money's central role as an expression and index of worth. Since in a consumer and market-oriented society, we are what we do, consume and hoard, we are loath to allow our worth to be compared publicly lest we fail to measure up to others' expectations, much less our own definitions of success. Money is a touchy subject. We use it as a barometer often, perhaps too often, as an indicator of our worth or our value or our importance. And because we're so insecure about who we are and what we have and how much we have and how we spend what we have, we tend not to want to talk about money, even in faith communities. Unfortunately, Jesus does not share our inhibition. He is not bound by our limitations. He talks about money and wealth and resources frequently and directly. And perhaps if we listen to him closely, we too, we too might become a little bit more comfortable in discussing our financial resources. And perhaps if we tend to our scripture reading this morning, we might discover that there is a close relationship between who we view God, how we view God, and how we view what we have. The story is a familiar one. A master is going on a long journey, and before he goes on this journey, he summons three of his slaves to him. To the one slave, he says, here. Here are five talents take care of these. To another, he says, here are two talents, take care of the, these. To the third servant, he says, here's one talent, take care of this. Uh, do you remember from this week's weekly, our newsletter, how much a talent is worth? One talent is worth 15 years of wages. 
He has entrusted to them an incredible sum of money. You remember what happened, we just heard it. The master returns after an extended trip and he goes to settle accounts. He goes to the one who had been entrusted with five talents and that servant says, Master, I took your five talents and I've made five talents more. Well done, good and tr trustworthy slave. Enter into the joy of your master. He goes to the one with the two talents and he says, Master, you gave me two talents. Here are those two and two more. Well done, good and trustworthy slave. Enter into the joy of your master. And then he comes to the third talent, the one to whom he had entrusted one talent. Oh, master, I knew that you were a harsh and severe man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. I was afraid, and, and so I took your talent and I buried it in the ground. Here, here's your talent. And the master is painfully disappointed. Oh, oh, you, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew that I was a harsh man? Oh, if so, why didn't you take my talent and invest it with the bankers so I would have at least received some interest? Take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. The first slave was entrusted with five talents and returned to his master ten talents. That is worth 150 years of wages. But the third slave was just so afraid, apprehensive, and anxious he hoarded what little he had. He kept it to himself. He did not try to use it in the world, to invest it, to play with it. He wanted no risk. He held on it very, very tightly. Where in this story are we ever led to believe that this man, this master, is harsh and severe? The third slave claims that the master is harsh and severe, but there's nothing in the story to indicate that. Indeed, this is a master who is incredibly generous, who is overwhelmingly trusting of his slaves. Consider the amount of income, the wealth he entrusted into their hands. A New Testament theologian Tom Long says, the master has entrusted his slaves with vast sums of money not just for a night or two, but for an extended period of time. Moreover, in a culture where slaves were expected to do their duty without receiving praise, pats on the back, or brass plaques, astonishingly, this master gives them extravagant tribute, increased authority, and perhaps even welcome into his home as members of his family. Enter the joy of your master. What kind of person is this master? Not harsh, not severe. He's kind and benevolent and trusting. And more than anything else, his character is marked by extravagant 
generosity. Evidently, the first two slaves know this. They know that their master is benevolent and is gracious and generous. But, but the, third, the third servant, he's bound by fear. His imagination is trapped. Uh, the first two joyfully and responsibly played with the master's money. They understood that the money did not really belong to them. And so in a spirit of delightful discipline and a zealous abandonment, they worked and risked to enhance its value. They nurtured what they had. They, they sought to please their master. Where, where in the world did this third servant ever get the idea that the master is harsh and punitive? One of my favorite sayings, I've not shared this with you, it goes like this. What Jack says about John says more about Jack than it does about John. What Jane says about Jill says more about Jane than it does about Jill. What this third servant says about the master says more about the third servant than it does about the master. James Hudnut Beamler in that little book, Generous Saints, says that the greatest block to generosity is insecurity, and I suspect that is true. And I suspect that this third servant was woefully insecure. He lacked the discipline, he lacked the playfulness, he lacked the trust, he lacked the freedom, the spontaneity to, to, to enjoy the gift bestowed to him by the master. And so he held on to it tightly like this and put it in the ground. Fundamentally, this parable makes a statement about the kind of God we worship. And it tells us that our God is a God of extravagant generosity. When we come to stewardship season and the church, I have observed over the years, as I suggested a moment ago, that most people get fairly uncomfortable and start looking down and he's not talking to me this morning and you know God doesn't really need my money and why do we have to talk about money all the time in the church uh, when we do it maybe once a year don't you think that's kind of amusing I, I, I actually after one stewardship sermon some years ago a man walked down and said why do we talk about money all the time well it was the third time he'd been in church all year and it was really the only time I talked about money unfortunately if we followed Jesus' example, we would be talking about money well, about 80% of the Sundays in the Christian year. What I invite you to do this year as we prepare for Stewardship Sunday next week is not to think about the needs of the church. They're important. They have their place. As you think about what you will financially commit to this congregation next year, do not think about what the church needs from you. Do not imagine all the programs we could create if our, our giving suddenly doubled or tripled. No. Stewardship is not about meeting a budget. Stewardship is not about the needs of the church. Stewardship is about my relation to Jesus Christ and my understanding of God.
Stewardship challenges me to determine how I will use the one talent that God has entrusted to me in the world. That's stewardship. Stewardship is that celebration, that playfulness, that opportunity, the privilege that we have of giving back to God in the church because we have already been richly blessed. It doesn't depend upon what the church had. If we had an endowment, for example, that was four or five times larger than it already is, and it is extremely uh, uh, generous, even so, we would still be talking about giving because that's what Christians do. If we had no trouble because of our endowment, meeting our financial obligations every year, we would still talk about stewardship because it is a spiritual practice. It is part of what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus means that we take that one talent, that two talent, or the five talents, and in a spirit of playfulness and joy, wow, what can we do with one another as we pool our resources and seek to serve God this year? What might be available? What, what might we accomplish in the name of the kingdom? Not because, not because the church needs the money, but because as a believer in Jesus Christ, I need to give. And as a community, we need to support one another in giving. And so don't think so much about what the church needs. Think instead as you consider what you will pledge for next year. Think about the kind of God we worship. Who is this strange God that we worship every week? A very strange God of extravagant generosity. Do you remember when Jesus went to the wedding in Cana? The wine runs low. And his mother gets embarrassed. And so she gets her son, Jesus. Jesus! Jesus! Come on, do one of those tricks. Come on. And she how? Woman, my time has not yet come. Yeah, 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 whatever. Uh, uh, Jesus, come on. Just like you do with your lemonade stand, create some wine for us today, okay? And so they took to Jesus the six jars of water. Do you remember how much water was in each jar? 30 gallons. They took to Jesus six jars of water, and in each jar there were 30 gallons, and Jesus turned the water into wine. Jesus made 180 gallons of wine. We could celebrate communion for 20 years with that. Extravagant generosity. Not just a little bit of wine, but a lot of wine. At the end of a, a day of hard teaching and preaching, Jesus was tired and the people were hungry and the disciples said to Jesus, uh, Lord, send them home! No, no. And Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish and blessed them and fed, the text says, 5,000 men. And so when we add the women and the children, Jesus fed that day between 12 and 15,000 people. It's the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels. We worship a God of what? Extravagant generosity. The youngest son leaves home and takes his inheritance with him. When he returns home, the father just doesn't go up to him and shake his hand and say, Welcome back, son. Instead, 
The father kills the fatted calf and they have an enormous party to welcome the son who has returned to the fold. Extravagant generosity. It's worth mentioning that Jesus tells this parable near the end of his life. He's only a couple of days away from the cross from being crucified, from being tortured. And yet, even at the end of his life, he's trying to communicate to us that our God is a God of what? Extravagant generosity. So generous, in fact, that when God wants to love us, God does not send us a letter or a messenger. God sends us instead God's son. Extravagant generosity. Do any of you know the name of Osceola McCarthy? I love that name, Osceola McCarthy. Anybody ever heard of Osceola McCarthy? She lived in Wayne County, Mississippi. Very poor. When she was in the sixth grade, she dropped out of school to take care of an aunt who was very ill, and she never returned to the classroom. She never learned to drive. She didn't have a car. She pushed a shopping cart a mile in one direction to buy her groceries. She earned her income by washing the clothes of other people in town. Their pants and shirts, their socks and underwear. That's what she did throughout her life, just for a few pennies. Uh, she washed the clothes of those who had far more wealth than she did. And then in 1999, Osceola McCarthy died. And she left to her church 10% of her estate. She left to her family 30%, and she left to the University of Mississippi 60% of her estate. And the University of Mississippi took that $150,000 gift to create scholarships so that other students might have the opportunity that she never had to go and learn and study. So my question for you is, what kind of God did she worship? Did she worship a God of extravagant generosity? Maybe so. Maybe so. Amen.